Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. So, coming up in episode 98 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have an update for bars, hairdressers, community centres, cinemas, etc., on the COVID-19 record-keeping requirements and their impact on GDPR. Following on from that, we have a review of some suitable app for such venues to keep the data required for NHS track and trace. And in another COVID-related story, we have news that Matt Hancock is facing legal action over track and trace and the alleged lack of a data protection impact assessment being carried out before Track and Trace was put into action. Moving away from COVID-19, we have news of a new kind of ransomware affecting MongoDB, which instead of demanding a ransom, otherwise it will delete the data, is demanding a ransom, otherwise it will report the owner of the data to their relevant ICO for having a GDPR data breach. We have news that Facebook have identified another fresh data breach, and then we have a look at an ONS report which identifies cybercrime hotspots across the UK. We then move right up to the north of Scotland with news that NHS Orkney has suffered two data breaches in one calendar month. We then travel across to America for a look at CCPA now that CCPA has entered the enforcement stage. And staying in California, we have news of the Californian healthcare plan which has suffered a major data breach. We then come back to Europe, to Italy, where the Italian Data Protection Authority, the Durante, has fined Unicredit €600,000 for a data breach. We then have a review of a report from the EU, which sets out the EU's global ambitions for GDPR. And then finally this week, we travel to Australia for a look at Australia's new CDR rules, and we compare them to GDPR. So, a good mix of articles again for you this week. We do hope you find something there which is useful and informative. If you have any feedback on the show, please always email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive and we act on it wherever we can and use it to improve the show moving forward. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, we're not able to reply to your emails individually. With just two episodes to go now before we get to episode 100 of the GDPR Weekly Show, do listen out during this episode for details of the competition that we're running. And please do enter the competition because someone has to win and someone in two weeks' time will be the lucky recipient of £100 for winning our competition. So listen out for those details and do take part. It's just a bit of fun, but we hope you enjoy it and we hope you will take part and get your entry into us. Your Coronavirus Roundup from the GDPR Weekly Show. We begin this week with an update on some information we brought you last week about the effect of COVID-19 regulations on pubs and restaurants and bars and other areas. And this week the government has issued further guidance on exactly what is required. It's important to emphasise, as we did last week, that the key requirement is that you do need to be registered under GDPR. So if you're not, then please go and do that straight away at ico.gov.uk. 
And the second is that you must update your privacy policy to tell people that you're now collecting data under Trouble ID 19 regulations and why, and what they can do to request that you either change or delete that data. And all these changes are in our model privacy policy, which we've made available on our Trouble ID 19 page on our website, which you can find by going to www.gdprweeklyshow.com forward slash COVID-19, that's C-O-V-I-D-1-9. The first thing the government's made clear is where these rules are going to apply to. And basically, it's going to apply to hospitality, including pubs, bars, restaurants and cafes. Tourism and leisure, including hotels, museums, cinemas, zoos and theme parks. Close contact services, including hairdressers, barbers, shops and tailors. Facilities provided by local authorities, including town halls and civic centres for events, community centres, libraries and children's centres, and places of worship, including their use for events and other community activities. One thing they have made clear is that if you're a cafe or a pub or a restaurant and you're providing just takeaway service, you don't need to capture these details for people who are coming just to get a takeaway. So when they just come, collect their food and go, you don't need to collect any information at all. This also includes suppliers who are coming to your premises just to deliver goods. As long as they simply drop the goods off and then go, then there's no need to record their details. So perhaps you should discourage suppliers from hanging around for a drink or something to eat after they've delivered the goods, unless you want to do that, in which case you will have to record their details, as obviously then they will be on your premises for a period of time. But in any other circumstances where people are staying within the premises, then there's various information you need to collect. First of all, let's look at your staff. You need to record for each day the name of the staff who work at the premises, a contact number, phone number for each member of staff, and the dates and times that the staff were at work. And it's also recommended that you make a note of what zone they're working in within your premises. What's recommended is that you divide your serving area or your tables, your covers, into zones. And a particular member of staff works just in one zone. So, for instance, you might have an outside beer garden and one member of staff solely works in the beer garden. And you record that against a staff member for that day. The reason that's important is it helps limit the number of people who need to then self-isolate should a case of COVID ID-19 occur, either in your staff or in your customers. So turning to your customers and visitors, you need to record the name of the customer or visitor. Now one thing that the government has made clear is that if there's more than one person, i.e. there's a group or family, then you don't need to record the details of everyone. You can just record the name of the lead member of the group and the telephone number for contacting them, whether that's either their landline number or their mobile number. And also just make a note of the number of people in the group. Against the phone number and the name, you should also record the date of the visit, their arrival time and, where possible, also their departure time. Now, it's recognised that departure time may need to be approximate because... You're not going to expect people to come and check out necessarily from your premises. So it's recognised it could be to the nearest 15 minutes or 30 minutes for the departure time. And if a customer is interacting with only one member of staff, for example in a hairdresser's salon, the name of the assigned staff member should be recorded alongside the name of the customer. And that's the only data that you need to collect from a Top ID 19 perspective. 
Now, of course, it may be that if you're using a third-party booking system, and we come on to have a look at some of those in the next article this week, but if you're using a third-party booking system, it may well be, of course, that that's recording all this information for you anyway. But if you're not, then you need to find another way of recording it, whether that's electronically or whether it's just on pen and paper. The giving of the contact information is totally voluntary, although you should encourage customers and visitors to share their details in order to support the NHS test and trace and advise them that this information will only be used where necessary to help stop the spread of 12ID19. If a customer or visitor informs you that they don't want their details shared for the purposes of NHS test and trace, they can choose to opt out. And if they do, you should not share the information used for booking purposes with NHS test and trace. The accuracy of the information provided will be the responsibility of the individual who provides it. You don't have to verify an individual identity for NHS test and trace purposes. As we mentioned last week, you should hold the data for 21 days. And once 21 days are up, you should make sure that you have a way of destroying the data. Now, if that's computer data, you can just delete it. If it's physical pen and paper, then you need to find those paper records and make sure that you destroy them. But please destroy them by using a cross-cut threader. Please don't just strumple them up and throw them in the bin or just rip the paper in half. That's not good enough. You have to make sure that you've shredded the information. Otherwise, you'll find that you're in breach of GDPR. Again, if you check out our 12ID19 page at www.gdprweeklyshow.com forward slash 12ID19, then you'll find details of suitable cross-cut threaders on that page of our website. Do bear in mind that because this information is being held to be compliant with GDPR, then the person leaving their contact data with you can come back at a later date within the 21 days and ask to see the information that you've recorded about them. Or indeed, they can come back within the 21 days and ask you to delete their information. And again, you must be able to do both of those, which is another reason for making sure that you keep the data not just secure, but in a way that you can easily search, because you don't want one of your members of staff to have to spend 15 minutes hunting through piles of paper to find the bit of paper with the, with the lady or gentleman's name on to show them what information you have. It's much easier if you can just very simply go to that and find it quickly. You can deal with the person quicker, you can get on with your day quicker, and the person and goes away hopefully satisfied with their experience at your premises. The government has also provided information on when you should share this data. NHS Test and Trace will ask for these records only where it's necessary, either because someone who has tested positive for COVID-19 has listed your premises as a place they visited recently, or because your premises have been identified as the location of a potential local outbreak of COVID-19. NHS Test and Trace will work with you if contacted to ensure that information is shared in a safe and secure way. You should share the request information as soon as possible to help identify people who may have been in contact with the virus and help minimise the onward spread of COVID-19. NHS Test and Trace will handle all data according to the highest ethical and security standards and ensure it's only used for the purpose of protecting public health, including minimisation of the transmission of COVID-19. Some important points to note are that if you are contacted by NHS Test and Trace, the contact tracers will always call you from 0300 013 5000. That's 0300 013 5000. That's the only number. So if an NHS Test and Trace call comes in from a different number, it's a scam. So don't provide the information. Only provide it if it comes from 0300 013 5000. Or they will send you a text message from NHS Tracing. Or they will ask you to sign into the NHS Test and Trace contact tracing website, which is at https colon slash slash 
contact-tracing.phe.gov.uk. If you suspect that the tool is a scam, then don't give any details. And clues that it might be a scam include that real NHS contact tracers will never ask you to dial a premium rate number to speak to them, for example, a number starting with 09 or 087, ask you to make any form of payment or purchase a product of any kind, ask for any details about your bank account, ask for your social media login details or identities or those of your contacts, ask you for any passwords or pins, or ask you to set up any passwords or pins over the phone, disclose any of your personal or medical information to your contacts, ask about protected characteristics that are irrelevant to the needs of test and trace, provide medical advice on the treatment of any potential coronavirus symptoms, ask you to download any software to your PC or ask you to hand over control of your PC, smartphone or tablet to anyone else, or ask you to access any website that does not belong to the government or the NHS. A golden rule has to be if you're at all suspicious about the tool's true identity, do not reveal any information to the caller. Stay in. Stay safe. In our previous article, we mentioned about the need to capture customer data and that you might want to do that electronically rather than doing it on pen and paper. And so we thought it was worth spending a few minutes just looking at some of the possible solutions that you might want to use. Most of these solutions are apps, either for iPhones, Android devices or iPads. But where they're not an app, we will of course mention that so that you know what you need to purchase in addition maybe to the solution. So the first solution which we're looking at is a app called Time to Spare. Time to Spare works on phones and tablets. And Time to Spare lets you easily check customers in and out, store their data securely, and it also remembers your regular customers, so you're not having to ask them each time that they come into your premises. Staff only have to tick a box, and there's no need for your customers to download an app. This solution is not expensive, and it's not a booking service or ordering system. You don't have to change the way you operate. It works just as well with walk-ins as it does with venues with pre-booked tables. Using time to spare means you're fully compliant with the latest guidelines, including the optional best practice. It lets you avoid a potentially hefty GDPR fine that might come from using pen and paper. Customer details are hidden, encrypted, and only stored for the required 21 days. For more details about time to spare, go to openmypub.com, where you can sign up for a free 7-day trial. Setting up is simple and only takes around 5 minutes. The next solution we looked at is a system from Promotedio. Promotedio has created a platform called Guest Visit, which ensures publicans and restaurant owners retain all the data securely and adheres to GDPR regulations. It gives your customers the assurance that it would only be used in the event of an NHS test and trace request. The system does not allow the pub or restaurant any access to the data, so they can neither lose it nor use it to market it back to the guests. Promotedio is accredited by the Data and Marketing Association, the DMA, GuestVisit is a simple, secure, GDPR-compliant registration site for customers who simply scan a QR code at the pub or restaurant and then simply enter their name, email and phone number on the site. The data is collected safely and stored securely and is available to any hospitality business within two minutes of them signing up. For more details on GuestVisit, simply go to www.guestvisit.co.uk. The third solution we've looked at is a system called InkPass. InkPass provides the safest, easiest and most secure way for all venues to record their guest details and remain fully GDPR compliant. To use InkPass, guests must follow a one-time registration process and then check in. Once checked in, the user will have a pass that is displayed on their phone, which is easy for your staff members to see. 
Eat Pass is free to use for all guests. For businesses, after a 30-day free trial, it's just £10 a month with no minimum contract. And for details on Ink Pass, please go to https colon slash slash inkpass.io. The next solution we looked at is a solution called Venue Trace. It's one of the simplest options for test and trace compliance. After signing up on the website, which only takes about two minutes, your venue is issued with a unique venue code which you can share on posters across the pub. Venue Trace have even designed the posters for you. Customers then visit the Venue Trace website, enter the venue code and then check in with their name, email address and phone number so they don't even need to download an app and you can do it for them if they don't have a mobile phone. Then, if you're contacted by the contact tracers from the NHS, you can return to the Venue Trace website, confirm the time period you need and download all the data in an easily shareable CSV file. Venue Trace also includes an option to collect data for marketing, but that does require extra consent from your customers. Venue Trace costs £5 per month, excluding VAT per venue, and there's a 14-day free trial, so you can check the solution is right for you and your customers. For information, go to https colon slash slash www.venuetrace.com forward slash hash forward slash venues. We also looked at recordcustomer.com. Recordcustomer.com is a web-based solution which helps pubs and other venues comply with track and trace responsibilities in a fully GDPR compliant manner. The first step is to sign up and you can even upload your logo so the platform can create you a unique web page and QR code. When the customer arrives, they will simply scan the QR code on their device, complete a short form and check in. That's it. No need for your staff to patrol the pub and interact with the customers or pass a random pen and paper. It also goes one step further. The customer gets a confirmation screen which they can show you on entry or when they get served just to give you peace of mind. When it's time to leave, they just scan the QR code again or press sign out. If the government asks for customer details from a specific time period, you simply log into your dashboard and download the relevant data. The system automatically deletes data after 21 days, so ensuring you comply with GDPR regulations. For details, go to www.recordcustomer.com. Another QR-based app is Door Sentinels, and they've introduced a product called SAM, which is a QR reader-based app which enables customers to easily and securely pass their contact details to any pub or licensed premises which is required to obtain, retain and destroy customer details to comply with track and trace. Scalable for one venue or a thousand with functionality for adding administrators for the whole business or specific locations, Door Sentinels have solved the headache for businesses of all sizes to scan people into their pubs or restaurants in a hassle-free way. For more information, visit www.doorsentinels.com. We should add that this is only a selection of available apps on the market and we have no connection with any particular app supplier or vendor and we've received no payment for any of the app mentioned in this article. Anyone can spread coronavirus. Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. A potential headache for the government occurred this week when it was found that although more than 150,000 people have had their personal information handled by NHS England's test and trace scheme since it was hurriedly launched on May the 28th, some 36 days ago, the government has failed to conduct a risk assessment about how people's details, including names, contact details and house status, are protected, and unless it provides these details by July the 8th, it will be taken to court. Lawyers working on behalf of privacy and free speech organisation Open Rights Group have issued House Secretary Matt Hancock and the Department of Health and Social Care, DHSC, 
with a pre-action legal letter that says that they have breached requirements of the Data Protection Act 2018 and GDPR by failing to properly conduct the Data Protection Impact Assessment, DPIA, for the whole test and trace system. As I hope you're probably all aware, DPIAs are a form of risk assessment designed to make sure people's data, privacy and human rights are protected. They're also a mandatory legal requirement where the data being handled is either sensitive or there is a large volume of data. And obviously in this case, both of those conditions apply. The function of a DPIA is to allow organisations processing people's information to examine what's being done with that data, whether it needs to be collected and what would happen if things went wrong. Test and Trace has been criticised for failing to reach a quarter of the people who tested positive for COVID-19, a lack of staff training as thousands of people were initially employed, and the collapse of the NHS Developed Contact Tracing app, which was tested out on the Isle of Wight, which we've mentioned in a couple of previous episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Incidentally, it's also been established that there was no data protection impact assessment available before the app was trialled on the Isle of Wight. Jim Killock, Executive Director at ORG, said just because there's a medical emergency doesn't mean that you just forget about basic data protection and safeguards. What you end up with is hugely risky data practices, unknown risks, potential data leaks, abusive information and destruction of trust in your programmes from the public. If people end up thinking these programmes are untrustworthy and that they shouldn't participate, you could have a really serious public health problem, Killett went on to say. He said, I think the government failing to do data protection impact assessments is reckless. Now, of course, it has to be said that the test and trace setup is complex. People's sensitive personal data must be handed over and an array of private companies are involved. People are required to hand over their date of birth, sex, NHS number, email, telephone and COVID-19 symptoms as well as the contact details of those they've been around. The NHS Business Services Authority is managing contracts that have been handed to NHS Professionals, Serco UK, SITEL Group and Amazon Web Services. The Open Rights Group and its lawyers, AWO, have been asking for details of the data protection impact assessment since June the 2nd, days after Test and Trace was launched. They say they faced delays in getting responses, the setup of Test and Trace seemed rushed, plus there had been a lack of clarity and transparency when responses had been received. The legal complaint, which was sent to Matt Hancock and other officials at the Department and Public Health England on July the 1st, claims processing of people's data is in breach of the Data Protection Act 2018 and GDPR Article 35. They say there have only been privacy and data protection considerations made to a few narrow parts of the overall test and trace system and that they will file for a judicial review after July the 8th if a full review isn't completed. For DHSC, a spokesperson said it was unable to comment on ongoing or potential legal action against the department. Within the legal letter, a private secretary at DHSC is said to have emailed ORG saying... There were data protection impact assessments and accompanying privacy notices undertaken for both the testing and contract tracing advisory service aspects of the programme, which augment pre-existing assessments regarding public health tracing functions. In a later message, they say the contract tracing advisory service is a website that thousands of people employed by test and trace use to enter the details of people identified by the service. Emails sent by the government department to OWA and ORG say they believe a number of data protection impact assessments instead of a single unified data protection impact assessment would be appropriate under GDPR. On the day that Test and Trace launched, Politico reported that a Test and Trace DPIA was being completed and that NHS England expects to publish this shortly. The new legal letter says that a DPIA should have been conducted for the overall Test and Trace programme, not just certain parts of it. 
it says the department should produce an assessment for the whole process and put in place controls for any risks that are identified. The test and trace system initially planned to keep people's data for 20 years, but as we reported in the previous episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, this has now been reduced to 8 years. When we contacted the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, they said that they are reviewing a DPIA for parts of the test and trace system and looking at the risks. A spokesperson said the ICO recognises the urgency in rolling out the test and trace service during the health emergency, but for the public to have trust and confidence to hand over their data and that of their friends and families, there's also work needed to ensure risks are properly and transparently mitigated. The ICO adds that it is in contact with people leading the test and trace system so it can find out more about their processing, understand the data protection implications of the test and trace programme and its ecosystem, and make sure laws are being followed. However, this isn't the first time that the government has been threatened with legal action for failing to publish documents during the pandemic. In early June, Open Democracy and legal group Fox Club were hours from suing the government for failing to release contracts between the NHS and Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Faculty, AI and Palantir. Freedom of information requests for the contracts were refused on the grounds of commercial confidentiality, but following the threat of legal action, they were published. We want to give the government every chance to get this right, Tillett added. We're not trying to bring the programme down, we simply want them to sort the risk out. It's obviously likely there will be developments on this during the coming week, and so we'll bring you any developments in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. And now, the rest of this week's news. A dangerous new form of ransomware appeared this week. The ransomware appears to only be targeting MongoDB databases, but it's having rather a novel effect because whereas traditionally ransomware has taken data, encrypted data and threatened to delete that data unless you pay a ransom, this new ransomware takes your data, encrypts your data and unless you pay the ransom, it threatens to report you to your relevant ICO for a GDPR data breach which it's actually initiated, which is a very novel way of approaching the issue and presumably they believe it will work and will get some companies and organisations to pay the ransom. So if you have a MongoDB database as part of your system, and if you're not sure, check with your IT team, but if you do, make sure it is well protected because this new ransomware does seem to be coming quite prevalent. The ZDNet website said that the hacker behind this new campaign has uploaded ransom notes on some 22,900 MongoDB databases that are left exposed online without a password. They are using an automated script to scan for misconfigured MongoDB databases, wiping them and then demanding a ransom of 0.015 Bitcoin or around $140 be paid. The campaign was first discovered by security researcher Victor Jeevers at the Dutch Institute for Vulnerability Disclosure back in April. After leaving the ransom note, the attacker gives victims two days to pay before they contact the victim's local ICO or GDPR Enforcement Authority to report the data leak that has been caused by them in the first place. It's quite easy to tell whether you've been infected. Once the attacker gains access to your MongoDB server, they wipe the databases it contains and create a new database called README to recover your data. Inside the new database is a collection named README, which contains a ransom note explaining the victim's data has been backed up and that they must pay $140 to recover it. The ransom note reads, After 48 hours expiration, we will leak and expose all your data. In case of refusal to pay, we will contact the General Data Protection Regulation GDPR and notify them that you store user data in an open form and is not safe. 
under the rules of the law you face a heavy fine or arrest and your base dump will be dropped from our server. Based on preliminary analysis conducted by Divas, he believes the data was actually not backed up, but the database has simply been wiped. While cyber criminals have targeted unsecured database servers in the past, this is the first time that they've used the threat of a GDPR violation against their victims to ensure the ransom is paid. If we get any update on this, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I wish I could find a better job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal? Yes, Jubal.com. Jubal. We help people get jobs. It's been a while since we've mentioned Facebook on the GDPR Weekly Show, but this week Facebook has admitted that thousands of apps hoovered up people's private data without permission for months after the people involved had stopped using Facebook services. The social media giant said around 5,000 developers were mistakenly granted unauthorised access to non-public information in breach of the company's own rules. It has not revealed how many Facebook users have been affected. The admission comes two years after Facebook pledged to lock out third-party app data access if the service had not been used for 90 days, following the Cambridge Analytica scandal which harvested people's data and that of their friends who had not given consent via permissions granted from personality test quizzes inside the social network. The data leak appears to breach Facebook's own rules governing personal information access that it brought in following the Cambridge Analytica incident which saw founder Mark Zuckerberg grilled by the US Congress about how Facebook used people's information. It is understood that the newly discovered data leaks include both internal apps such as games and also external platforms where users can log in using their Facebook credentials to avoid having to use a separate sign-in process. The latest admission again spotlights the volumes of personal data users sign away when they grant approval to apps as the tech firm said it had not seen evidence that shared information was inconsistent with the permissions that people gave. Facebook said the non-public information may have included a person's email address, birthday and gender when Facebook was used to sign into apps, even if the person had not used the service for 90 days. The social network gave the example of a data leaking from a fitness app where a user had invited a friend to a workout, but the recipient's usage was dormant for a long time. Facebook's Vice President of Platform Partnerships, Konstantinos Papamilitatis, said, Recently, we discovered that in some instances, apps continued to receive the data that people had previously authorised, even if it appeared that they hadn't used the app in the last 90 days. He went on to say, We currently estimate this issue enabled approximately 5,000 developers to continue receiving information, for example, language or gender, beyond 90 days of user inactivity. He said the bug had been fixed, to help strengthen data security requirements and clarify when developers must delete data. We expect the Irish ICO will follow up Facebook at some point, and when we get an update either from Facebook or from the Irish Data Protection Authority, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Celebrate our 100th episode with us and you could win £100. Just name the five countries where we have most listeners worldwide. Listen out for more details. Thanks, Isabella. Yes, it's true. All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning £100 when we come to celebrate episode 100 in a few weeks' time is to guess which five countries we have the most listeners in. Just list down the five countries, put them on an email to us, And one lucky person will win £100. We also have some limited edition t-shirts and mugs for runners-up. So don't delay. Do it today. Hey, Mike, tell our listeners what they have to do. Send your entry to competition at gdprradioshow.com. 
Cambridgeshire was crowned the UK's data breach capital this week, with data breaches surging by 49%, although the Thames Valley recorded the highest absolute number of cases. Cambridgeshire has experienced the sharpest rise in cybercrime in the UK after businesses in the area saw the number of criminal cases rise by 49% between 2016 and 2018, the last year for which data is available. An analysis from the Office of National Statistics shows the number of offences rose from 2,789 to 4,155 in Cambridgeshire during the three-year period. This was the sharpest increase from the 20 UK regions examined. Cambridgeshire was followed by North Wales, which saw a similar rise of 47% between 2016 and 2018, from 2,126 to 3,133 cases. Thames Valley sustained the largest number of offences in absolute terms in 2018, with 13,070 cases, an increase of 38% over the three-year period. The second highest number of cases in 2018 were seen in Greater Manchester, with 11,640 offences registered, followed by West Midlands, with 11,477 cases. All 20 regions saw an increase in cybercrime across the period, however the slowest rise was sustained in Dorset and Cleveland, which each saw a 22% climb between 2016 and 2018. Dorset saw offences rise from 2,848 to 3,463, while Cleveland saw an increase from 1,431 to 1,748. Cleveland, incidentally, was the region which regarded the lowest number of offences. On the opposite side of the Pennines, Cumbria also registered a relatively low number of offences in 2018, just 1,777, although it was the third fastest rising area for cybercrime, experiencing a 40% surge since 2016. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. NHS Orkney must be able to demonstrate robust measures are in place to prevent any more data leaks, according to Orkney's member of the Scottish Parliament, Liam MacArthur. Responding to the news of a second data breach by NHS Orkney in the past month, this time to a journalist of the Orcadian newspaper, Mr MacArthur said, After a similar data breach last month, I said it was essential the matter be fully investigated by the Information Commissioner's Office and NHS Orkney so that lessons could be learned and urgent action taken. Unfortunately, there's been little time for that to actually happen before this latest breach. NHS Orkney holds some of the most sensitive personal data imaginable. It is absolutely essential, therefore, that it has the systems in place to protect that information and ensure it is only shared if and where appropriate, he said. NHS Orkney's interim chief executive has offered an immediate apology and promised to carry out a thorough investigation that is appropriate and welcome, he continued. However, with two serious data breaches in the space of a month, for the sake of public confidence, and the confidence of NHS Orkney staff, Mr Dixon will need to demonstrate he's been able to put in place robust measures to prevent any repeat in future. We've not yet had any comment on this from the Information Commissioner's Office from the ICO, but should we receive any such comment, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GPL Week Show. We are counting down to episode 100 of the GDPR Weekly Show. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. 
the enforcement phase of the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, began on July the 1st, despite pleas by some business groups to delay it because of COVID-19 coronavirus impact. The introduction of the enforcement phase means that California's Attorney General will be able to take direct action against businesses that violate the privacy protection requirements of CCPA. The law has been in effect since January 1st, 2020, but until now enforcement was limited to civil actions brought by consumers against violators. While CCPA can be compared to GDPR, there are some important differences. GDPR is more focused on consumer rights. CCPA also has this, but is focused on identifying businesses that are violating them. So while many of the same methods protecting consumers' data apply to CCPA as GDPR, the difference between being that GDPR may be more broadly based because it applies to more than just consumer data. However, if you're already GDPR compliant, you're most of the way to being CCPA compliant as well. As is the case with GDPR, where you're required to comply if you collect data on Europeans, with the CCPA you're required to comply if you have data on California consumers, even if you or your business are not located in California. Exactly how the Californian Attorney General plans to enforce CCPA on a non-resident company remains to be seen, but it's probably better to be compliant so you don't have to find out the hard way. As with GDPR, there's a few simple steps that you can take. Make sure your website contains the required information on your protection practices, i.e. has a good up-to-date privacy policy, and that that privacy policy details the kind of data you collect and retain, contact information for any inquiries, a statement about any sales of consumer information, and a means dropped out of such sales. Confirm the type and quantity of consumer information you retain, how long you keep it for, why you keep it, and that it's been properly protected. It's also a good time, perhaps, if you're thinking of needing to comply with CCPA, to evaluate your data protection and make sure that your data encryption meets modern standards. And of course, as with GDPR, it's all about minimising the amount of data that you hold, so it's worth evaluating the data you hold and establishing quite why you need to hold each piece of data. It will probably be a while before we hear of any action actually being taken by the Californian Attorney General, but if we do hear of any such action, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. The Central California Alliance for Health announced on Tuesday this week that it had recently become aware of a data security breach that may have resulted in the unintentional disclosure of member health information. The Alliance is the Medi-Cal Managed Healthcare Plan for Merced County, in addition to Santa Cruz and Monterey counties. In a release, the Alliance says there is no evidence that member information was accessed or misused. According to the press release, an unknown, unauthorised third party accessed three employees' email accounts to obtain the credentials of several individuals during a brief period on May 7, 2020. After potentially suspicious activity, Alliance staff immediately began an investigation to determine what information was potentially accessed. The company determined that limited member health information may have been accessed, however the information would not have included any financial information or any social security numbers. The Alliance remains committed to protecting member information and has taken steps to prevent a similar event from occurring in the future, the company said. The email accounts of the employees involved were shut down and all Alliance employees were required to change their system password information. All employees were also required to complete a training course on preventing these types of data security breaches. Letters were sent out to potentially impacted members, which included additional information of what had occurred. 
it is understood that the Alliance has over 330,000 members in Monterey, Merced and Santa Cruz counties in California. If we receive any further information on this data breach from the Alliance, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Celebrate our 100th episode with us and you could win £100. Just name the five countries where we have most listeners worldwide. Listen out for more details. Thanks, Isabella. Yes, it's true. All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning £100 when we come to celebrate episode 100 in a few weeks' time is to guess which five countries we have the most listeners in. Just list down the five countries, put them on an email to us, and one lucky person will win £100. We also have some limited edition t-shirts and mugs for runners-up. So don't delay, do it today. Hey Mike, tell our listeners what they have to do. Send your entry to competition at gdprradioshow.com The Italian Data Protection Authority, Garante, recently announced that it has levied a €600,000 fine on banking institution Unicredit for several violations of the Italian Personal Data Protection Code in its pre-general data protection regulation GDPR form. The sanction was imposed following a data breach that took place between April 2016 and July 2017 that the banking institution notified to the Garante at the end of July 2017. As a result of the breach, the personal data of over 700,000 customers including contact details, employment data, education data, identification details and financial data, including bank account numbers, information on loans, payment status and customers' credit ratings, was unlawfully accessible. The Garante found that the bank had failed to implement adequate security measures and comply with local requirements regarding the tracking of banking transactions. In determining the amount of the fine, the Garante took into account the number of individuals affected by the breach, as well as the fact that the bank had implemented various security measures to strengthen its security of its IT systems following the breach. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Businesses can expect to see a continued push towards a more global approach to data protection in the light of an EU review into the implementation of GDPR. Actions planned in response to the findings from the European Commission's GDPR review underpin its broader aim for greater convergence of data protection standards internationally. Regular listeners to the GDPR Weekly Show will know that this is something which we have very much welcomed. The review said that the European Data Protection Board, EDPB, would continue its efforts to drive out differences in the way EU governments and national data protection authorities applied the data protection law and push to expand the network of jurisdictions deemed to offer equivalent data protection to that available in the EU and with that the revision of the standard contract clauses to help companies transfer personal data around the world more easily. Refining data protection law and guidance to support digital innovation in areas such as the use of artificial intelligence and blockchain technology is also high on the agenda. Having carried out this two-year review into GDPR, the Commission announced that its next review would be in 2024. The review notes that every country within the EU has now introduced its own data protection law on top of GDPR, but being in line with GDPR, the only EU country not to yet introduce its own domestic law is Slovenia. One thing which the Commission did pick up on 
was the differences in age of consent across the EU nations and it said that it would continue to work to try to get this harmonised across all of the countries involved. The Commission also highlighted the differences in what is regarded as special category data from one country to another and this has become particularly important with the cross-border tracking and development of solutions to the COVID-19 crisis. The Commission has asked the EDPB to clarify the interplay between rules on international data transfers and the territorial scope of GDPR. The GDPR's territorial scope, which covers processing activities of foreign operators that are active in the EU market, must also be reflected in the enforcement action by the data protection authorities, it said. In this regard, the Commission said representatives within the EU should be appointed to liaise with data protection authorities of so-called third countries. Finally, the assessment and eventual approval of binding corporate rules and the completion of the work on the procedures and criteria for codes of conduct and certification methods is seen as essential to further develop the toolkit for international data transfers. According to the Commission, the GDPR acts as a major reference point at international level for countries developing their own data protection frameworks and has accelerated the introduction of modern privacy rules in many jurisdictions, most recently in the Dubai International Financial Centre. While this should contribute to improved data protection when data is transferred outside of the EU, it should also facilitate legitimate data flows. In this respect, the Commission plans to ramp up its dialogue with policymakers around the world, for instance through the EU-Africa Partnership and in discussions with the OECD, G20 and G7, with the objective of increasing respect for privacy and developing elements of convergence between different privacy systems. The Commission also plans to establish a Data Protection Academy to facilitate and support exchanges between European and international data regulators. The Commission's report also highlighted its intention to continue fighting abuses of privacy and digital protectionism, including by challenging disproportionate access of foreign authorities to personal data and forced data localisation requirements. And finally this week we travelled to Australia where as part of the rollout of the consumer data right on 8th of May 2020 the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, the OAIC and the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the ACCC jointly published a compliance and enforcement policy for the consumer data right. From the 1st of July 2020 Major banks will be required to make available to accredited persons consumer data relating to credit and debit cards, deposit accounts and transaction accounts. To give a bit of background on the consumer data right, the consumer data right is intended to allow consumers to have more control over their data, so very like GDPR and indeed CCPA. Subject to applicable privacy safeguards, the CDR facilitates the disclosure of information relating to individuals, to the individuals themselves or to accredited persons. In other words, the CDR allows consumers to direct their bank to provide the consumer's information to other suppliers such as price comparison services. Increasing the portability of data in this way will presumably lead to increased competition and drive innovation. The CDR was introduced into the banking sector in July 2019 with a phase rollout to occur throughout 2020 called Open Banking, followed later by the energy and telecommunications sectors. The CDR applies to CDR data. For the opening banking rollout, this includes the information such as customer data, which identifies consumers and those authorised to act on the consumer's account, e.g. the name, 
the ABN, the ACN, any contact details, account numbers, account names, opening and closing balances, direct debit deductions, etc. Entities wishing to collect or receive CDR data must be accredited by the ACCC. Since the 26th of May 2020, businesses have been able to apply through the ACCC's Consumer Data Right Register and Accreditation Application Platform. The Australian Government has acknowledged that allowing the open disclosure of data in such a way requires stringent safeguards to protect the privacy of consumer information. As such, the OAIC and the ACCC have released privacy safeguards which set out how privacy will be protected and how confidential data will be dealt with under CDR. Importantly, the privacy safeguards in relation to CDR apply to both individual and business consumers, unlike the Australian privacy principles under the Privacy Act 1988, which govern the use of personal information only. Most notably, the privacy safeguards require data holders to manage CDR data in an open and transparent way, give CDR consumers the option of using a pseudonym or other non-identifying information in relation to their CDR data, not collect CDR data unless a consumer has requested that it be collected, disclose data only when required by law and destroy CDR data which is obtained contrary to the consumer data rules, notify consumers whose CDR data has been collected, not disclose CDR data to overseas recipients unless the recipient is an accredited person under Australian legislation or is subject to an overseas law that provides substantially similar protection for CDR data as the Australian Privacy Safeguards, Ensure that CDR data which is required to be disclosed is accurate, up-to-date and complete. Ensure that CDR data is protected from misuse, interference, loss and unauthorised access, modification or disclosure. And correct CDR data when requested to do so. Given the stringent regulation of data privacy, the involvement of third parties in the data selection process has unsurprisingly been a key concern of the ACCC and its stakeholders. In December 2019, the ACCC consulted on the most efficient way to facilitate the selection of CDR by third parties. On the 22nd of June 2020, the draft Competition and Consumer Consumer Data Right Rules 2020, allowing for the collection of data by third party intermediaries, were released. Broadly, these draft rules allow CDR data to be collected by third parties, providing that the third party intermediary is accredited to collect CDR data and is collecting CDR data on behalf of another accredited person. If implemented, the draft rules will allow two accredited data recipients, the principal and the provider, to enter into a combined accredited person arrangement. This will enable providers to collect and or use or disclose CDR data to the principal who would provide the requested goods or services to the consumer. Importantly, providers under such arrangements would only be permitted to use CDR data if a principal could also be authorised to use the data provided the privacy safeguard requirements above are met. The consultation process for these draft rules is set to close on the 20th of July 2020. From a compliance perspective, the OAIC and the ACCC are focused on preventing consumer harm and ensuring the efficient operation of CDR. To do this, the OAIC and the ACCC will receive information from CDR consumers, businesses and other stakeholders regarding the operation of the CDR framework, for the banking sector, receive reports from the Australian Financial Complaints Authority to address any concerns within the relevant sector. And it's understood that this will be later expanded to energy and telecommunications dispute resolution bodies. Receive mandatory periodic reports from both data holders and recipients concerning CDR information. 
undertake audits and assessments of data holders to ensure compliance with the consumer data rules, legislation and privacy standards, and issue data requests to data recipients, and if required, utilise statutory powers to compel the production of information or documents where there had been a possible breach of CDR regime. Where breaches of CDR regime occur, the OAIC and the ACCC are able to take enforcement action, the gravity of which depends on the seriousness of the breach. In determining the appropriate enforcement action to be taken, the OAIC and ACCC will consider factors such as the nature and extent of the breach, the size of the business engaging in contravention, the impact of the breach on the CDR, CDR participants, and whether the breach was due to intentional or reckless conduct. If action has already been taken to address the breach by other bodies such as the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, this will also be considered. Given that the action which may be taken by the OAIC and the ACCC is largely discretionary, it would be prudent for businesses and data holders to cooperate with regulators and to ensure that their privacy policies and breach notification procedures are adequate and up-to-date. Under the policy, the OAIC and the ACCC are granted a range of enforcement options. These include administrative resolutions, such as accepting voluntary commitments from businesses to address non-compliance issues, issuing infringement notices to data holders or recipients where a contravention of the CDR framework has occurred, accepting written court enforceable undertakings from CDR participants who commit to refraining from certain action or to take action to remedy a breach or prevent future breaches, suspending or revoking a recipient's accreditation to receive CDR data, and initiating court proceedings for a breach of the legislation or consumer data rules, which could result in potential injunctions, monetary awards or orders, disqualifying certain persons from being directors of corporations. Court proceedings are more likely to be initiated where the conduct is widespread, repeated or likely to cause substantial consumer detriment. Given the novel nature of the CDR framework in Australia, the OAIC and the ACCC intend to continue consulting with industry and consumer groups and government bodies as the phase rollout of CDR continues. There are obvious likenesses between CDR and GDPR and we will be keeping an eye on CDR and updating you in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show as and when appropriate. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity. Until next time, bye-bye.